Welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. We are glad that you could join us this afternoon. And this afternoon, we're going to be covering a topic which is very much in the present zeitgeist over the last 24 hours. A development which happened in a certain part of the world that uh, we sure you've heard of we you heard about by now and this prompted today's topic if for no other reason that the fallout from the events of the past 24 hours will surely have a profound relevance and resonance in the coming days and weeks and months and possibly even years and beyond. Before we dive in in any meaningful, detailed way, um, we would like to just express how we may be using what amounts to code words or speaking a little bit in... in um, in vague terms or not using certain terminologies and certain names specifically because we have to be cognizant of the fact that we recently received a strike on this channel on a video which we posted back in 2021. Uh, the powers that be at this platform decided that they would review some of our uh, past live streams and they found one they didn't like and uh, it apparently violated policies which as a result said video was removed but this channel received a strike and the way the system works on this platform is if you receive too many strikes your channel can be suspended or outright removed uh, we of course would like to avoid such inevitabilities if we can. It is to a large degree out of our control. However, we are able to make clear what it is we are referring to without using certain buzzwords which will make their automated bots sound red flags and alarms, if you will. And while <clears throat> there aren't any particular policies that we are aware of that are entirely relevant to today's proceedings. That is not to say that such policies won't be enacted or won't be brought down in the future. And what's more is those policies 
may very well extend beyond merely the platform we are on. Um, in recent days, the uh, Parliament of Canada enacted legislation to uh, greatly restrict or greatly increase the manner to which they monitor and uh, to which they monitor and manage content on various platforms from all over the world in an apparent attempt or supposed attempt to protect the citizens of the Great White North from all sorts of supposed malicious content and disinformation and whatnot. Such legislation we may find on the rise in the coming years. And <clears throat> to the degree that it may become very difficult to speak about certain topics, we must be aware of that, cognizant of that fact. The information that we relay here on a weekly basis, its fundamental nature uh, has not changed in thousands of years. And for a great deal of time, uh, during that time, for a great large chunks of time throughout space, <clears throat> those proffering this information and sharing this information had to do so in secret, had to go underground because of the profane nature of humanity in general and its tendency to abuse the truth because knowledge is power, but also to uh, fear that which they do not understand and to persecute those who do not fall into line and follow their rigid ideologies, belief systems, etc. We don't want to dwell on this too much, but given the specific identity of the major players involved in the certain conflict which has erupted in the world in the past 24 hours, we must recognize the state of the mainstream media and the fact that said institution <clears throat> is very much an institution of the state, no matter where you go in the world. They are state-run institutions. And we must be cognizant that we are indeed treading on thin ice as we delve into the topic at hand, even though our concern here is not to make any sort of political statement, is we're not here to side with any uh, political interest. <clears throat> we are here to explore the esoteric significance of all conflict, of all confusion. And since we are in the Kali Yuga, these two phenomena conflict and confusion, in essence, describe the very foundation of the very nature of the age that we are living in. 
just try to get a straight answer out of Google or out of any online resource, you will get a myriad of opinions and theories and beliefs and, uh, and of course, individuals and groups happy to sell you seminars and programs and workshops and retreats to indoctrinate you into their particular belief system, into their particular worldview, their particular my truth. <clears throat> Confusion is certainly what is swirling around the what is uh, bellowing out of like a cloud of smoke bellowing out of the core nucleus of conflict which is broken out in that part of the world in the Middle East and when we look to our own lives and when we look to conflict which arises between ourselves and those closest to us very often we can also experience that cloud of confusion which bellows out of that conflict if the conflict is the spark the explosion the incendiary reaction Confusion is that cloud of dust, of smoke, of collateral damage, which results from that incendiary spark. It is the aftermath. And as you are likely aware of from your own experience, that cloud lingers cloud of dust that cloud of smoke that cloud of debris it lingers and it <clears throat> persists and like the name suggests it clouds our vision it clouds our judgment that's precisely what confusion is but when we consider the word confusion itself it's interesting because if we consider the word, the word consists of two components. And the first component is con. And the second part is fusion, confusion. Now, what's very interesting, when we look at these two words, surely the meaning of these two words should be very clear to us. And yet, when you look up the etymology of the word confuse, and let's, you know, let's not... Uh, Let's make it clear here. 
bear with us as we walk you through this exercise because it's important. According to Google, oh, oh yeah, we can't we can't highlight that. So let's see if we can make that bigger. <clears throat> According to Google or Oxford Languages, confuse comes from <clears throat> uh, confundere, which means <clears throat> uh, to mingle or to be together with. And then we end up with confusus in Latin and and um, uh, confuse in old French and then confound and confused. And in English it says, you know, bring to ruin, et cetera, et cetera. And <clears throat> if we look at the word conflict, we, we get something similar where according to scholars, according to these <clears throat> gatekeepers of language, the prefix con means together. Now, fligere in Latin means to strike. So to strike together or struck together, conflict. <clears throat> that makes more sense in one sense. But the problem with this etymology, with this interpretation and this insistence that the prefix con means together is <clears throat> the word confusion actually means this, this would be a redundancy because to fuse together, fusion is to bring together. And if con also means together, then why would you? put confuse together. Now, according to the etymology, there is a logical natural progression that we would arrive here using that prefix con. So we use con a lot, conflate, conflict, confuse, contrary, aha, contrary. <clears throat> In English, Con is the antithesis of pro. We have pro and con. What I think what happened with, as they were doing the etymology of words and languages, there's another prefix called co. Now this absolutely means together. Co-mingle, cooperate, coincidence. Right? Co-opt, cooperation. Uh, this absolutely means together. Why would there be two prefixes in Latin that mean the same thing spelled differently? And why would they come down? And then why would con mean things like contrary, right? There is something fundamentally amiss in the modern etymology in English with the alleged and established 
doctrinal origins of these words because confusion is to is contrarian meaning to oppose pro being positive or to support <clears throat> and confusion if fusion means to arrive at or to synthesize to create to form Now, interestingly enough, then we have the word conform. And that version of con suggests to be with. With form. So, there's this there's this fundamental confusion about the prefix con, where it sometimes means with or to support, but it sometimes means it's it's contrarian, it's it's the opposite. It's to oppose. And it is with this strange uh, conflation, again, to conflate. To conflate means to uh, confuse, to confuse something with something else. So does that mean that you are pro or against? It's confusing. But confusion is like chaos. It's like a cloud. It's like you can't, you can't put your finger on it. You can't fuse or you can't bring into form you cannot determine an answer. You're in a state of confusion. You're lost. Conflict to us leads to confusion because this to us, this fusion, means the same as union. To be fused as one with this is the uh, Sanskrit yug and the Latin, uh, Latin le, uh, religare, meaning to fuse together or, or to bind together as one. When we are confused, when they create confusion through conflict, our union, our ability to achieve yug and religare, which are the root words of yoga and religion, They are negated. They are opposed. We are in a state of confusion, not oneness, not union with our higher self. When we know things, when we are conscious, when we are aware, and when we receive insight and intuition, we know. Confusion to us, forget about the Latin etymology and everything else, what it means in present day and what it means practically speaking is precisely this. And so conflict 
as we described, conflict is that incendiary spark, that, that explosion out of which bellows this whole cloud of confusion. Conflict leads to confusion. And when we are in a state of confusion, we are con, we are confused. We are not connected. We are not one with our higher self. We are separated. Conflict between individuals or between groups, okay, may appear on the surface to be about separating them. But that's the external, literal, uh, physical manifestation of the separation which is taking place inside. The confusion and the conflict In the Latin, confligere, according to that, it's you're, you're striking together, which is ironic that striking together, you would think that would lead to fusion, but it doesn't. It leads to confusion, which is the opposite of fusion. So you take two people and you strike them together, you put them against each other in conflict, and they end up very confused. <clears throat> this is, in essence, what we're talking about when you hear the phrase Divide and conquer. Every conflict, the, the striking together, the opposition, the, the what appears to be dividing and conquering out there in the world, all such conflict leads to the confusion within the individuals who are locked in the conflict. And who is divided and conquered? Everybody. Everybody is divided and conquered from their self. Nobody can win in a conflict if everyone ends up confused. If what you end up with is chaos and everybody is scrambling to identify with this side or that side, It's not merely a question of dividing nation against nation or race against race or religion against religion and then some secret cabal secretly 
plays both sides and uh and controls everything by getting people to fight amongst themselves that's what the conspiracy theorists and what most people in general think of when they think of divide and conquer but we have to see beyond the surface we have to see beyond the events that are taking place in the world and we have to see deep within ourselves within our own psychology and recognize what is actually taking place and what is taking place is we are being divided and conquered our lower self our mortal self is being drawn from and separated from our higher self our, our innermost being our consciousness is becoming confused dazed and confused alarmed shocked overwhelmed by these assaults of images and and uh, words and images and propaganda and and uh, uh, words of anger and hatred maybe directed at us or at other groups and we are alarmed and shocked of what's happening on the world stage and we are sucked into it we are drawn into it identified and we become we become attached with the immediate outcomes of the chaos which is taking place as a result of that incendiary spark as a result of that conflict which is taking place and as we are made to identify with it and we become perhaps overly sympathetic to one side or the other side and we lose sight of the bigger picture and ourselves we are divided and conquered and this is what all conflict is for this is why the black lodge loves conflict and loves creating confusion because as we pointed out we are in the kali yuga And Kali Yuga is the age. It's the age of confusion. We're living in the age of confusion. So we look to the events of the past 24 hours in the Middle East. And we see an escalation of a conflict which has been, in modern terms, it has been taking place for what 70 years over 70 years 100 years really but that's really just the latest chapter in a conflict which is thousands of years old and older still beyond that that conflict has now we have some finality has been expressed on at least one side of that conflict about this is the end of this conflict that as a result of the unprecedented attack that now the uh this conflict will be brought to a head and 
there is a real potential for this conflict to, for the cloud of confusion that's bellowing out of this conflict <clears throat> to spread not only throughout the Middle East, but around the world. And anywhere there is confusion, anywhere there is doubt, and anywhere there is fear, and that cloud of confusion contains within it the potential to spark more conflict. Conflict which resembles the originating spark. One can, there's a number of different analogies or, or allegories that one can use to, to understand what is potentially taking place right now. And one is the pebble that starts the avalanche, that starts the rock slide. It can begin with a single pebble, which precipitates a chain of events, a chain reaction that leads to a catastrophic rock slide and avalanche. It's possible that we experience that, that first pebble or that, that first boulder being shifted and dislodged and rolling down the mountainside. It's possible we experience that in the last 24 hours. It certainly feels that way to people in that part of the world and it may feel that way to people all over the world who identify with either side of that conflict. If that is the case, if indeed what began moving and shifting does accelerate and precipitate a wider a wider cloud of confusion which spreads again through the region and beyond the borders of the Middle East to encapsulate other countries around the world, then we could all be facing a cloud of confusion that this humanity has never faced before, ever. Other humanities prior to ours faced such clouds of confusion and crises in their own Kali Yuga. But this humanity, on a global scale, uh, will have never faced the type of confusion that could potentially be unfolding as we speak. Because if this incident really does precipitate a broader, wider conflict. And it draws individuals into it and draws nations and nation states into it. Then everyone who gets drawn into it, who gets sucked into it, into that cloud of uncertainty of that confusion, all of them will be being separated from their innermost being, from their higher self. They will be confused.
in that context, we may be witnessing the beginning of the War of Armageddon. That war prophesied not only in the book of Revelations, but by many, many uh, prophets. The war to not just end all wars, but the war to end this humanity. Or the war that will mark the beginning of the end of humanity. We cannot speak to this with certainty in absolute terms. But there is, again, we re re reiterate, there is a kind of finality about the response to the assault, which suggests that there are elements who wish to bring this conflict to a head. And if they do so, and if in their bid to bring this conflict to an end, they do something rash as setting off a nuclear device, then we will see an acceleration, uh, an escalation, and a collapse into a downward spiral of uh, international cooperation and 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 civility will just go out the window and we will we will then be witnessing something that again this humanity has never witnessed And we will enter in a whole new age of confusion like we have never known. Because there are individuals, if you've been keeping track of the events that have been taking place over the last few years, uh, hundreds of thousands of individuals from the Middle East have been migrating to the West, not just in Europe, but also to North America, and indeed Australia, to the developed world, to pr predominantly Christian nations. If, in the course of events, uh, one particular side decides to declare a holy war, then if that is declared, then it will be the sworn duty of every individual who is identified with that side to take up arms against the, uh, the so-called infidel, the non-believers. 
And over the past few years, hundreds of thousands and millions of, of individuals who would likely identify with and side with and would be bound by their religion, by their faith, to take up arms against the infidel. Um, not all, but many of them would, would answer that call. And that could see all four corners of the world suddenly plunged into conflict. And, the, and just imagine the confusion which would bellow out in the developed world where, you know, in, in the bright and sunny suburbs of Toronto, for example, where no one has ever experienced uh, open conflict of this nature ever, except for maybe uh, maybe during the uh, the War of 1812. Just imagine if all of the many migrants from all over the parts of the world who 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 are uh, affiliated with the religion of Islam. Imagine if they suddenly were to take up arms in support of a fatwa, in support of a jihad. Or in the suburbs of Texas, or in the suburbs of Chicago, or pick any, or, or, or London, or Paris, or, or the countrysides of, uh, of any European nation that have been flooded, uh, well actually mostly they've been flooded to the urban centers. But even in Sweden and, and Northern Europe that have been have seen hundreds of thousands of, of uh, individuals from the Middle East been migrated there almost in a forced migration. Just imagine the confusion which would which which all of the uh, Western nations would suddenly face. And put yourself in the midst of all of that. Can you visualize and put yourself in the midst of that cloud of confusion? How are you going to react? Are we going to allow ourselves to become confused? and lose what connection we have to our higher self? Are we going to become sucked into our fear or anger? Some desire for vengeance, some desire for control. A desire to turn to violence as our first and only answer to the cloud of confusion that's that's rolling in like a dust storm like a sandstorm in the sahara and we can see it we can see it like a wall of sand just advancing upon us we cannot underestimate the power of the primal survival instinct the power of fear 
the desire to control our destiny as physical mortal beings. The primal animal survival instinct, we cannot underestimate how powerful an instinct that is. Even if we consider ourselves to be a very easy, down-to-earth, not anxious person, we don't suffer from anxiety, we're not a worry wart, we generally speaking, it's all everything's water off a duck's back, you know, pretty easy going, we think we've got our fear in check. We're not afraid of anything, we're not afraid at all. Now just meditate and visualize gangs of militant freedom fighters or holy warriors riding around your neighborhood firing AK-47s into the air. Or worse, firing AK-47s into your living room. We feel it's fairly safe to say no matter how much you think you have your fear under control, uh, there are going to be deep-seated pockets of fear that you don't know about rushing right to the surface. And you will experience a fear that you've never felt before in your life. If you've never had anyone shooting at you, you don't know how you're going to react. You don't you will know how you will react to being shot at when you are being shot at. If, that is, you survive being shot at long enough to have a reaction. And that's just the hard truth. But remember, as we've often talked about, when we talk about the transformation of impressions, and we talk about being on the path, it's not about avoiding emotions. It's not about repressing emotions. We are permitted to feel fear. We are going to feel fear. It is inevitable. The question is, what will be our response? Will we catch our reaction in time? And will we, will we be able to transmute that reaction and turn it into a measured response and perhaps perhaps the only response that we will have available to us the only reasonable pragmatic response perhaps will be to pick up a weapon and defend ourselves that may be the only valid response we have available to us we won't know until we're in that situation for sure and we cannot rule it out. And we cannot be naive. And we cannot believe that, oh, we would just be like Gandhi. And we'll just take a path of nonviolent passive aggression. And walk out and greet our, our assailants with open arms and embrace them. And like so many New Age light workers, erroneously believe that our positive energy and our positive vibes are going to envelop them and, and engulf them and they will be transformed and in a magical moment of rainbows and unicorns and, and bellowing trumpets from choirs of angels that they'll, they will put down their, lay, they lay down their weapons and they will see the light and they will come over and they will embrace us as brothers and sisters and they will say, praise Allah, we have seen the light. 
If you think that's what you're going to do, congratulations, you will be another body in another mass grave. If you think that's what your response is going to be and you think that's what the outcome is going to be from your response. You'll be another body bag if you make it into a body bag. Like I say, it's most likely most likely you'll end up in a mass grave because if the type, if the conflict which could potentially that we're describing unfolds and rolls out, there will be no medals awarded. There will be no ceremonies. There will be no coffins returning with American flags on them. None of that stuff. The War of Armageddon, if we are witnessing its tepid uh, minute nuclear, nuclear origin, if that's what we are witnessing right now, the War of Armageddon will be a kind of savage and brutal it really will be like a global guerrilla warfare. And the powers that be will want to take advantage of the tremendous confusion that this will cause. Because remember, just imagine, just look around you in your own life or in, in society in general here in the West. Can you imagine how any of the millennials or Gen, or Gen Z would react? These entitled youngsters who are, generally speaking, useless at everything, how they're going to survive, how they're going to react to suddenly being thrown into the middle of a, of a cultural or religious uh, holy war playing out in their, in their streets where all their life they have known nothing but comfort and security and and, and everything's been handed to them on a silver platter. And these are the generations that demanded the creation of safe spaces on college campuses because language is violence. These people can't even, these people can't even handle being criticized without calling it violence. How do you think they're going to handle actual real violence, life-threatening violence? Just imagine the confusion. Look at all these, these young people who are so weak in terms of dealing with the, the difficulties of life. Imagine if they're suddenly thrown into a worldwide conflict of cultural and religious significance. And just imagine the confusion. And then consider that for 22 years, governments in the West have been enacting and enacting into law and building out infrastructure around laws, said laws, which give authorities unprecedented power over the civilian population. We are, of course, 
referring to those laws passed in the wake of 9-11 and the rise of institutions such as the Department of Homeland Security in the United States and similar legislations and similar institutions which have uh, take many different forms in Europe and elsewhere but all follow the same uh, general modus operandi and the same general philosophy. Certainly, it is expressed most strongly both legislatively and <clears throat> practically in the United States where if you are dubbed an illegal combatant or an enemy of the state, you are by definition no longer a citizen. And therefore you lose all rights as a citizen, including the right of legal representation, the right to a trial, and the right to the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. These fundamental rights that all citizens of the United States enjoy, even if they are accused of a crime, they are meant to and supposed to be protected by these various articles under the Constitution. The right to legal representation, the right to a fair trial of your peers, and the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. These are fundamental to the legal process for citizens of the United States. But if you are deemed and labeled an enemy of the state, all those rights are foregone. You have, you have carte blanche indicated that as an enemy of the state, you have no interest in being a citizen and therefore you have no interest in any of the protections under the citizenry. That's the quasi-legal philosophical rationale for being able to take enemy combatants and carry them off into uh, um, federal emergency management association or federal emergency management agency uh, facilities let's let's not uh, let's not you know, be so crass as to call them camps, because that may be exactly what they are. But again, we're trying to be a little bit um, uh, convoluted in our language and how we're phrasing things, so that uh, if there is some kind of uh, AI device scanning this at some future date, that it would be maybe uh, tripped up a little bit or um, confused a little bit. It won't be able to clearly pick out what we're talking about here. So these facilities that will be, you know, lovingly, lovingly decorated with um, very prickly wire fences. And you, you know, you'll be, you'll be shuttled off into one of these places where you will think, perhaps, to keep your hope alive and keep yourself alive, you will be awaiting some sort of 
trial or tribunal or some something which may never come and you may be there in that uh, emergency facility surrounded by uh, lovely uh, a, uh, electrified um, electrified fences or very prickly fences and watch 24 hours a day you may be held indefinitely in one of these wonderful emergency response resorts. Why? Well, here north of the 49th parallel, we have a federal leader, again, who've, and who's enacted some, uh, some laws and put onto the books. Very, very strict legalese related to content and online content in particular. And no doubt buried in the legalese of that law will be statements related to uh, hate speech and language which incites violence and language which incites uh, not just criminal behavior, but incites individuals to acts of terrorism. If you recall a number of years ago, and we have to be careful, especially with the speaking about uh, uh, language related to the, uh, the, uh, the <coughs> if you recall a number of years ago, there was a convoy of uh, truckers in Canada and uh, they were labeled all manner of things by the government to the point where their peaceful protests were even called uh, acts of terrorism. And they were called enemies of the state and you name it. They were, they were branded and labeled everything under the sun. And recently, recently, the leader of the federal uh, government, our prime minister, when we had a million parent march across the country in support of children and this in the support of parents rights in the education and the raising of their children our prime minister labeled the participants in that peaceful protest as uh as hate mongers and individuals who uh were were proponents of hate speech because you know protecting your right as a parent to raise your child with with values that you deem to be in accordance with your faith with your traditions right expressing your constitutional right to raise your child the way you deem appropriate Uh, that's hate speech. That apparently is incendiary, and um, it's it's a very small leap. That's not even a leap. It's a very small step, just a little nudge over the line, to then say, "Well, if you're uh, speaking hate speech, well, then you are instigating." Um, 
you are um, inciting others to act contrary to the interests of the government, what the government has decreed, and therefore your hate speech is uh, inciting people to become enemies of the state, and therefore your hate speech is an act of violence against the state that makes you an enemy of the state, and bye-bye, off you go to one of our lovely emergency management resorts where you think you're awaiting trial or tribunal, but you'll be waiting a long, 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 long time because you've forgone all of your rights as a citizen. The moment that we branded you as an enemy of the state, you are no longer a citizen and you're no, you're no longer protected by the Constitution because the Constitution is only there to protect citizens of the state, not enemies of the state. All this, you see, will be grounds for a great deal of confusion. And where confusion exists, frustration is not far, is not far away. Let us take their, our understanding of these words and understand the relationship between confusion and conflict and their reciprocal nature. Because we know from Master Yoda in Star Wars that fear leads to anger. And as you know, from the many times we've discussed it, fear is the desire to control and to control outcomes. Confusion is precisely being in a state of not knowing. And if we, we tend to fear what we do not know, and if fear leads to anger, this is how confusion, all of this adds up. And confusion leads to frustration. And frustration means the interruption of a desire for a particular outcome or for a desire to a particular process. So someone who is sexually frustrated, well, we use that terminology because they want to live out their sexual desires or sexual fantasies. They want to enact, they literally want the outcome of their lust. But when that is opposed and prevented, the obstacles come in the face of that while well, they become sexually frustrated. Their desire for the outcomes of lust have been interrupted. And out of that frustration can come a great deal of anger and violence. And that in it in turn feeds if out of the frustration 
and anger comes violence and chaos, destruction, and all these other wonderful disrupt disruptive and destructive outcomes. Well, that is just sauce for the goose, as it were, and just feeds back into fear. And the desire to control outcomes threatened by all of this and the cloud of confusion just grows to a whole different level. But keep in mind that at every step along the way, at every step along the way, what is being confused first and foremost are individuals who are being separated from themselves. They're not just being separated from one another and divided and conquered. No, no, no. Remember, the war for the souls of humanity is, is within. The Black Lodge doesn't care who wins these conflicts. You know why? Because the moment that we enter into these conflicts, the Black Lodge wins because it's separating, it's dividing and conquering each and every one of us as individuals which is their goal. This is what they want. The Battle of Armageddon is not out there in the world. The Battle of Armageddon is within the battleground of the hearts and minds of each and every last man, woman, and child on the planet. And the challenge our challenge, yours and mine, is to remember that and to maintain our connection, to maintain, to be, to remain fused. Because in that fusion with our higher self, with our true self, we won't fall into, we might, we may feel fear, but we won't identify with it. We will recognize it for what it is. And we will respond accordingly to whatever danger, to whatever circumstance we are in. If we remain connected to our higher self, if we remain fused, and we remain in control of ourselves, of our own reactions, of our own responses, that doesn't mean stifling and suppressing our anger, our frustration, and so on. It doesn't mean that. And it also doesn't mean uh, dogmatically avoiding violence. Again, if the only response we have is to physically and violently defend ourselves or defend our family, then that is what we must do. But to know whether or not that is what we should do 
if that is what we are meant to do, if that is the best course of action for us, that knowledge comes from knowing ourselves and remaining connected to ourselves, not allowing ourselves to be overwhelmed and our judgment clouded by the bellowing clouds of confusion that are pouring out from all the incendiary acts of conflict that may be erupting all around us. We don't want to be drawn into, we don't want to get sucked into that, that trap. Because that's what the Battle of Armageddon is. It's a trap. Just like the Kuf was. The Kuf was a referendum on fear. The Battle of Armageddon will take that to the next level. Fear and anger and envy and hatred and, and identification with things like religion or race, nationalism, nationality, all these things. All these external identifiers, they will all be used as vehicles, as tools to divide and conquer us from our self. We have to be prepared for that. And what if they're, what if we're wrong? Oh, you know what? We've got a bunch of comments. We haven't had the comment window open, so we haven't we haven't uh, we haven't been monitoring the comments because the comment window wasn't open. Okay, so here we go. Benjamin says, "Wow, sorry to hear that the uh, new rules um, circumscribe freedom of speech." Uh, this is going to be. This is going to become a thing, not just in Canada, but it's going to become a thing elsewhere around the world. And it's going to become a thing in the United States again. Uh, it's it, All of this, you know, and it's all designed to frustrate us. Because if you can frustrate individuals, frustration that, and that leads to confusion and separation, that anger... Right? You're gaslighting people, you're, you're goading them into taking a stance, into, into then threatening action against the state. If they can get you to do that, if they can get you to speak out against the state or speak out and be say something which can be judged as inciting violence, inciting terrorism, then instantly you become an enemy of the state and boom, you're taken away. No trial, no representation, no lawyer, right? No, no, and no presumption of innocence. Because remember, that's the other thing that has been taking place in the West in the past few years, thanks to the Me Too movement, is that in the kangaroo court of public opinion, women who accused men of sexual impropriety 
those men were considered guilty the moment that the woman accused them. So for several years now, the, the general public has been psychologically starting to become acclimatized to judging people and assuming and, and creating a presumption of guilt. And I mean, if the TV says they're guilty, how could they not be? The media says they're guilty. You might chuckle at that kind of notion. But the reality is the vast majority, the vast majority, they believe what CNN tells them or what Fox News tells them. And that's the way it is. And here in this country, as we said, when the when the when the truckers were doing their protest during the coup, our national media, right, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, was outright calling them terrorists and enemies of the state and everything under the sun, everything under the sun. It's state-funded media. How is that any different from any other propaganda state-run anything in any other part of the world? There's no, there's no objectivity there. There's no interest in, in informing the, having an informed public. No, it's just, just tell them what we want them to hear. Tell them what we want them to believe. It's perhaps we naively as Canadians, because we're so polite and we're so nice and we're so kind and we're so, you know, we don't want to ruffle any feathers. We don't want to rock the boat. Perhaps we naively never imagined that such a thing could happen in our country. And that certainly not someone as charming as, as our prime minister could ever, you know, bring about such draconian uh, legislation. But you know, our, our prime minister is just a puppet anyway. So he does what he's told. And we don't have to get into the details of who and what tells him to do what he does. Because really, it doesn't matter. Because all of these groups and all of these individuals who we might cite by name, they're all just useful idiots and they're all just puppets of the Black Lodge. Because they don't, nobody really cares. I mean, they might care, but in the end of the day, what really matters is what happens in the hearts and minds of each individual. That's where the Battle of Armageddon is fought, and that's where the battle for the souls of humanity is fought. It's not out there. It's in here. And we must always remember that. We must always remain cognizant of that. We must never be so eager to allow ourselves to get wrapped up in anger or frustration or confusion or chaos or or, or take sides or identify this side versus that side or or what have you, because if we do, we are losing the war. And we are losing the war for our own soul. You must remember that this everything that's happening is just part and parcel. It just comes with the territory of the Kali Yuga, the death of a humanity. And the question is, are we strong enough to be able to endure, to be able to endure 
and and observe all of that and maintain our composure and maintain our peace. We're not saying it's easy to do. And we're not saying you have to be you have to force a kind of stoicism upon yourself where you don't feel anything. This the again, the answer is not to try to force yourself to become numb and indifferent. But we have to learn and practice the transformation of impressions. There's a kind of healthy indifference to our own emotional states where we recognize, oh, there's my there's fear. Yeah, there's anger. Okay, breathe, get my composure. Yes, I feel angry. I feel frustrated. Yes, this is pissing me off. I see that. I see that I'm being pissed off. I can see myself getting angry. Okay, I'm feeling the anger. All right. Now, what is it that's making me angry? What is it that, why am I so angry? What is it inside of me that's making me angry? Forget about what's outside of you. What's outside of you is just the trigger. What is inside of you reacting to what's outside of you? Can you see its rationale? What, how is it justifying itself? That fear, that confusion, that frustration, that anger. Transform that. Transform yourself. Feel what you need to feel. What comes up, comes up. Recognize it, see it, experience it. Don't suppress it. Don't push it away. Don't try to avoid it. You have to face it. We have to face the adversary. The adversary is not out there. The adversary is in here. And the Kali Yuga will continually throw up, and that's a pun, in pun intended, will continually throw up circumstance after circumstance after circumstance, which is going to trigger the adversary inside of us and cause, cause it to, to rise up like, a, like the demon out of the darkness, like in Fellowship of the Ring, when the Balrog is awoken from his sleep. And all the other lesser demons, right? All the other orcs and the, the goblins, they all scatter in fear because the Balrog is coming. And watch out. We have to be aware of that. We have to know that within us, we have these Balrogs. We have these demons. And in order for them to come to the surface where we can face them and fight them, as Gandalf does, We have to see them. We have to, they have to be awoken from their slumber. And so the Kali Yuga is going to continually throw stuff at us over and over and over again. And we're going to be bombarded with all of this conflict and all of this confusion. And yeah, we might not know what's coming around the corner next. But do we know ourself? If we know ourself, we can face whatever comes around the corner. And we can face it with equanimity. And we can face it with that inner strength calling upon our innermost and our Divine Mother to guide us and to provide us with the response that is appropriate, that is not only going to get us through the situation, but is going to do so without accruing more karma, without harming ourselves or others unnecessarily.
Kathy uh, said hello with a heart. Thank hello, Kathy. Uh, glad that you could join us today. And Benjamin said uh, nearly an hour ago that uh, because English is a mixture of Greek and invented aggregations. <laughs> um, yeah, English is a real hodgepodge. And English, you know, they, you sometimes you look at the etymology of these words and you say, you know what, there's something just doesn't feel right about these etymologies. And remember, these etymologies were controlled by the intellectual elite, and the intellectual elite are the egos. And how many times have we shown you guys, time after time after time, the conflation and the confusion of language and how language is altered where words end up meaning their exact opposite. And, and this is just one of those situations where English is that perfect hodgepodge of, of different languages where it's one of the most difficult languages in the world to learn for the reason that there are, there are exceptions to every rule and multiple different exceptions to every rule. So it's very, very difficult, but it's very easy to create confusion using the English language. Benjamin Choa says, yeah, and there's a bunch of uh, Arabian people in my town. Yes, um, Benjamin, if we're correct, you are in uh, Africa, are, we, are you not? If we're, uh, if we're right in remembering that, then yes, there's, there's many, 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 many um, members of the Nation of Islam all over the world, including Africa. Um, and Southeast Asia. And so if uh, that's, you know, they really do, they really are trying to goad uh, the wider Islamic community into declaring a holy war, a jihad. If they can do that, then they can incite a global conflict <clears throat> a guerrilla warfare on the on the uh, on a global scale it's it could precipitate it could become that and benjamin says uh, we can only hope those middle eastern people adopt their new country's ideology uh it's sketchy <clears throat> it's hard to know well look um It's hard to know exactly here in in the West. Um, it's a lot of these immigrants have been handed. Uh, I mean, here in Canada, there's a shortage of five point six million uh, housing units. So, in other words, we have over five million. Uh, homeless people in Canada, and these are Canadian homeless people because the over 5 million immigrants that have been brought in over the past few years, they have all been given housing by the government. So all the affordable housing, none of it's like over the few last few years, it's all been going to, to immigrants who have been brought to this country who have also been being paid a stipend. They're, they've They've been receiving something like three thousand dollars a month plus free housing. Um, that's um, 
so we're only a country of like 40, 45 million people. So that's something like, that's 5 million homeless people. That's like, what, over 10% of Canadians are homeless. But the immigrants who've been bringing in have been getting a pretty sweet deal. So are they going to rise up against the nation if if they're told to um you know a lot of those people fled the middle east and they fled conflict and they fled oppression and they fled a lot of things and now they have it pretty good here in canada do they are they really going to bite the hand that feeds them it's so it's this could go many ways um but we can say that many uh, disaffectuated young men who have had everything handed to them over the years, and they might be Canadians, and they have ha had everything handed to them over the years, but they don't have very many good prospects, and they've seen a lot of this woke stuff taking over in Canada in the last, you know, the, the last half decade especially, uh, they might decide to uh rise up it's hard to say really how it's going to shake out um we have that expression the devil's in the details and certainly what's unfolding again we have this cloud that's beginning to we had this incendiary spark of conflict and now the cloud is beginning to emerge from the explosion right and that as that cloud gets bigger and that cloud gets thicker and more it's it's going to cloud our ability to see exactly how events are going to unfold because everybody still has free will everybody still has the ability to choose the path that they wish to walk and nothing is set in stone nothing is foretold precisely and that's why many of us who have insights or foresights about the future it's presented to us in a very kind of factual way saying, okay, this is going to happen. But then beyond that, we, we can't see what's going to happen because there's this inflection point that depends on how people are going to respond, how people are going to react to what just happened. And so you don't really know what's going to happen beyond that because the future is not set that way. It can't be set that way. Only those events can unfold which have already unfolded in the in the um in the astral plane and only those events can unfold which we know objectively can and will and must happen but we cannot predict how free agents are going to react we cannot know that until their responses or until their reactions have um have already manifested and until then it's like uh, people talk about the singularity or the point beyond an inflection point so things come to a head they come to a point a point of decision and beyond that you can't see what the future is because you don't know how that is going to turn out that inflection point you really don't know if it's going to go this way or that way it could go either way so you don't know what the outcome is and uh which is fine because we anyone who's really on the path knows that we can't be attached to outcome and we can't be 
identified with and and worried about or trying to control outcomes because that's that is the definition of fear right uh cassandra graham says she mentions she said the word observer and she said to be the observer of our emotions and that's the beginning the first step we have to observe ourselves observe our emotions but to transform them to transform impressions goes one step beyond observing the emotions to to extract from the presence of the emotion something positive something beneficial something productive and that so to digest the emotion consciously is is just one step beyond mere observance so you can practice this for example if you go for a walk in the woods or out in nature in the meadow or you know the fall is coming so perhaps where you live the you'll you have uh, trees that'll be changing colors and there'll be beautiful colors to look at and so on so go out in nature and take a walk a zen walk in nature and try to put yourself into a meditative state and walk and observe things that you observe and things that you really see And notice the difference between when you're on a walk in nature and you're looking at this and you're looking at that and you're seeing those things. You are observing nature. You are observing the trees, the flowers, the path, the rocks, the water, the waterfall, the whatever, the sky, the birds. You're, you're observing all these things. But then every now and then, something will catch your eye and draw your attention. And you might pause, you might stop your walk, you might, you might really focus in on a sound or on a, or on a bird or on a flower or on a tree or whatever it is that, that drew your attention. And you really start to focus on it and you really take it in. That's the difference between merely observing and transforming, seeing and penetrating with your consciousness the moment and re and seeing all the details of what you're observing so now you're not just observing like you might have observed 10 different birds on your walk but now this this woodpecker grabs your attention and you stop and you're watching this woodpecker as he's as he's you know doing his putting his holes in a tree and now now you you see all the details in the feathers, in the plumage, in the, 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 the graphics around his eye and under his eye and on his face and on his back and, 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 and the, uh, the little chips of wood or bark that are flying off the tree as he's, as he's doing his thing. Like all of these, this detail emerges from that experience. So that's what we mean by, by really digesting what you observe. And Cassandra says, true. 
observe, then take the observation and formulate from that the positive steps from that to take uh, next, even the decision to continue to wait. So there's that, right? I mean, there's that's the that's the practical, pragmatic approach to uh, how we respond to the emotion. So there's a th really a three-step process. There's observation, there's transformation, and then there's response. Even if the response is do nothing, or as you point out, or just just to wait, just to do nothing. But you know how hard it is to do nothing if you're sitting there fuming with anger or you're shaking with fear or you're or you're you know clenched up in stress or envy or right so to wait and persist and endure and indulge in emotion is not ideal it's number one it's very difficult number two it's very draining that's there's no faster way to drain your energy than to sit there trying to repress an emotion. So to so by digesting the emotion, we take the anger and we transform it. And it's not to say that we can transform anger into joy, right? Just, just to get us back to equilibrium. Just digest the anger. Why am I so angry? And really observe. And if you're you're all clenched up, you can observe all your clenched muscles and and breathe into them and you can release you can feel yourself releasing the tension in those muscles and and elsewhere in the body like you know in your neck and on and so on so observing the three brains and transforming and recognizing why i'm so angry ah oh, it's because i wanted xyz well, what wanted xyz oh it was my lust that wanted xyz or my greed or my envy i really wanted that person to get their just desserts right it was i had an expectation okay aha so i had an expectation there was an expectation there so okay so now i see how i was the cause of my anger because reality didn't meet my expectation well then what's that that's called the desire to control outcomes so the desire to be in control, to be a control freak, everything else, so that's fear. Now you know, okay, I was angry, but really what I really was was afraid. As you, you can quickly go through this process consciously, moment to moment, and dissipate that negative energy. You can breathe it out, you can breathe it down through the soles of your feet into the ground, and and in the transformation of that, then you can sit there and wait indefinitely because you're no longer fighting it. You're not fighting anything, right? Transformation of impressions is not about fighting. It's judo. It's psychological judo. It's taking the kinetic energy, the force of your attacker, of your assailant, of the adversary, and turning it and using that as momentum as you deflect the assault and you maintain your position of your defensive position as a result you're not fighting you're not it's 
It's more subtle than that. And Cassandra says, uh, indeed. Benjamin says, no, I'm in California, <laughs> Central Valley Indian, which is, a, which is Middle Eastern. <laughs> I thought one of our Benjamins was, uh, was in Africa. Well, that was my, that was our mistake. So, uh, but hey, listen, Benjamin, you're in California, so you may as well be in another in uh, another continent for how strange that uh, that state is compared to every other state in the United States. And Central Valley Indian, which is uh, Middle Eastern. So there you go. All right. So where were we with, uh, we said, ah, I think we said maybe we were wrong. Cassandra says, uh, to speak harshly to someone, uh, one is angry. Okay, to speak harshly to someone one is angry with would be like throwing fists. If you speak from, from anger, for sure, yeah. Sometimes we have to speak harshly to people. Or harshly maybe is not the right word. Firmly. And that doesn't necessarily come from anger, place of anger. A lot of, we really must know ourselves well to know the difference between severity and anger because our ego will often try to conflate and confuse the, the two. Again, we come back to this word confusion. And again, it's, relation, it's relationship to conflict because oftentimes we will, we will face an uh, opposition, someone behaving in a way that they shouldn't behave. And we must confront them. And confrontation, again, there's another con word, confrontation. This is, may, may as well be a good place for us to uh, address this. We've been talking about these con words, right? Confuse, conflict, Conquer, actually, divide and conquer, that's another con word. But often we have to, um, we must confront. Confront, again, suggest if you want to say with or together to, to, to front, to Two fronts together. So two, a face-off would be another way to describe confront. Two people facing one another. Mano y mano. It's a confrontation. And sometimes we must confront a situation or an individual. And as you know, we must always, if we don't want to be an ego, then the answer is to, uh, is to be in love, come from a place of love. But love is severity and it's mercy. So, if in the course of confrontation we must 
turned into into severity then we might have to you know speak uh we might have to be very firm we might have to be direct we might have to speak from a place of strength and and confidence which make no mistake people will people will call arrogance Mercy, hopefully we don't, you know, mercy is where things like kindness and, uh, and, you know, gentleness and where we get, you know, compassion. Whereas in severity, often we experience the opposite of compassion. We feel, com we, we, we come from a place of passion. We speak passionately in the name of truth, in the name of justice, which by the way, is the other word for severity, right? Um, we can, the other word for severity is um, uh, justice. Now by justice, we don't mean like social justice. We mean doing what, what is right. doing what is right. And that's why when we act in a confrontation, if we come, if we act with severity, we will often be accused of being uh, self-righteous and um, arrogant and so many things because the ego is going to try to want to gaslight us and goad us into falling off the wagon, falling into ego. And falling out of severity, out of mere confrontation, into conflict. And the ego is going to want to confuse us being firm and direct and passionate in the name of what's in the name of what is right and in the name of truth. They're going to want to conflate that and confuse that. And get us, um, get us to believe that we're being angry, or get us to actually become angry and frustrated. Um, Cassandra uh, follows up and she says, "To be honest with care and to care with honesty, without this balance, there is ego." Well, we always care. If we didn't care, we wouldn't bother. Right? We wouldn't bother with that. So caring is sort of um, rooted in, it's the, it's, if you didn't care, you wouldn't bother, right? So, but yeah, honesty is truth. And since ego is falsehood, and ego is a different kind of caring. Ego is self-care. So there's a difference. When we confront with love, we are acting out of the other individual's interest. 
when we <clears throat> confront someone and we fall into ego, we fall into conflict, we are acting out of self-interest. And that's where righteousness becomes self-righteousness. Yeah, so Cassandra says here, uh, compassion in the passion as to not be operating in anger-driven passion. Well, anger is a twisting and a, anger is a uh, degeneration of passion and fear and all these things. So it's really the way to um, contextualize this and understand this is understanding the difference between understanding the difference between um, you said the word care if you're predominantly caring about yourself you're an ego if you're predominantly caring about your uh, about the other you're in love you're in compassion you're in passion you're in all these things then you're in either severity or mercy it doesn't matter you have to apply what the other person needs this is where the expression spare the rod spoil the child comes into play that expression doesn't exist because it's encouraging you to beat your children the expression exists because if you do not if you do not apply severity in the upbringing of your child where it is required where your child requires severity if you're too squeamish or too sentimental to apply severity and you only apply mercy and compassion you're spoiling the child the child will not learn what they need to learn and they will not survive in this world because they won't know how to survive, because they will never have faced the severity of life. Because they were, they were never given that opportunity from their parents. And make no mistake, sparing the rod is a very clever, very subtle ego that is convincing you that you're being merciful and you're being compassionate towards the other person because you're not coming down hard on them. But really and truly, sparing the rod is squarely here. It's self-interest. You're sparing the rod because you don't want to be seen as a troublemaker. And you don't want to be seen as, as, as hard-hearted or cold-hearted or harsh or tough or strict. You don't want to be judged as the enemy by this person that you love that person that you want you're you're worried about what other people think of you you're worried about your your um uh yeah other people's perception of you so you're um uh, what's the word oh, we're drawing a blank but anyway you're concerned about yourself in that instance when you're sparing the rod but your ego will convince you that you're a good person because you're being kind and compassionate to the other person. 
That's where the expression comes to kill to kill a man with kindness or to kill a child with kindness. This is very subtle and for years we were we were confronted by this and we were faced with a great deal of fear related to being direct, firm, passionate and speaking the truth that um um you know because again we were and we were afraid that we were falling into that we were becoming a tyrant that that we were afraid of being a tyrant because that's the other thing right because you're worried if you're worried about yourself and this is exactly cassandra says like people pleasers are doing it for the self exactly they're people pleasers because they want to be seen and they want to think of themselves as pleasing people so that's a good that's a good way to uh to think about it but another way to think about it is they're afraid of being seen or seeing themselves as a tyrant as being bossy right as being cruel right of 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 lacking compassion you know uh, dispassionate so there's all these different ways that an individual can avoid 50% of what love is right 50% that's one half of what it means to love. Imagine leaving half of love on the cutting room floor because of what? Because of fear, because of pride. Fear because of pride, right? Because of one's reputation. This is the the word that we were looking for. And because of envy. Because you look at what this this stereotypical, uh, uh, you know, you watch a sitcom and you see what Hollywood says is the perfect parent. Or you you turn on the internet and you look at uh, what the internet, the new age says is the prototypical spiritual guru, the mild-mannered, soft-spoken, always polite and always being positive and always uplifting and always, always da 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 right? It's bullshit. It's nonsense. You think that's what it means to be spiritual? To always be stroking people and, and, and being positive and always filling them with positive affirmations? That's leaving 50% of what love is is on the table. And in fact, if what the person needs is a good talking to, and what they need to do is hear the hard truth, then filling them with loving, comforting affirmations is you're just stroking their ego. You're just, you're just, you're just pandering to them. You're doing exactly the opposite of what they need, then you're not. Forget about leaving 50% of love on the table. You're leaving a hundred percent of love on the table because. If in any given confrontation, in every any given circumstance, what someone needs is on this side of the equation, then this is 100% 
Because in that moment, that is 100% what love is. Love is what the other individual needs of from us. What someone needs from us and what we have within our power to give them. There is no room for confusion in a confront in applying love to a confrontation. There's no room for confusion and separation and worrying about what we care about, what matters to us, and what we're worried about. All this crap. All that matters is that we love the other in how we can or how we are able in other words to be to be what to be love and in any given moment love is severity right and or mercy Because it can be both. Because, of course, there's compassion and passion. And there is gentleness and kindness always as we are firm and direct. We don't never, we don't, we, yes, we never, we don't have to be cruel. We don't have to be dispassionate. We don't have to be cold hearted about anything. But if we are firm and direct and passionate, if we are acting from love, all of that mercy and kindness and gentleness and compassion will be there in the required amount so long as we are connected, so long as we are fused with our innermost source of love. And Cassandra agrees, and she says that uh, the innermost guides uh, with to do, uh, guides um, which to do, which which to do severity or mercy and up uh kathy earlier said uh we need to confront with mercy to set boundaries sometimes this um When we have the opportunity to do so, then we do um, confront and we, as you say, lay down boundaries. We say, this is what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And we do that precisely so that we inform others, again, what are the boundaries? What are the limits? What do we mean by crossing the line? And uh, if we're, especially when we're dealing with children, but also in relationships and other things. Um, we want to be sure, though, when we do so, that the boundaries that we're setting down are for the benefit 
as much for the benefit of the, of the other individual as they are for our benefit. Because while we recognize we must have self-respect and, you know, we cannot allow ourselves to become pushovers and people pleasers, etc. Because if we are too nice all the time, people will walk all over us. If we are setting these boundaries for our safety and our comfort, right, our security, and for our, for various different, in other words, for, for our benefit, then it's kind of as Cassandra suggests here. I set boundaries to, uh, to connect and love them to help us not disconnect. Well, the problem with that's, that's, that's fine. And that makes a lot of sense to the rational mind. But, and she says, disconnecting may be the outcome, but it is not the intention. It's never the intention, right? People, as Kathy says, you set the boundaries with an intention that if the other person respects the boundaries you set, that's going to bring you closer together. What we said before still applies. This is hard. This is hard to accept. Oops. This is a this is a bitter pill to swallow. And you can tell yourself that well, I am only able to love others. Right? You know, so to love, to care for another, to love for another is to be love, to love them how we can love them. And what you're saying is, well, in order for me to love them, and typically when we talk about boundaries, we're talking about like romantic love. I can love them if you know, X, Y, and Z boundaries are uh, respected, right? Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that these are conditions. That's a condition. Those are conditions. Now, again, we have another con word. And whether you believe that that means with or in opposition or opposed, doesn't matter. The word dition means state.
So what you're saying is I can love you if you are with the state or if you cross that state, if you are opposed to that state. So in other words, it's, it's a condition. You're either with me or you're against me. You're either within the boundaries or you're outside of them. It doesn't matter how you interpret the word con here. You, you, you end up at the same place. Right? To be or not to be. Now, having said that, we have to be practical. We have to be practical. This is not a suggestion that you owe everybody your unfettered allegiance and respect and uh, loyalty and devotion, no matter what they do. There, but there is a subtle difference between being with someone and trusting and respecting them that you we present a wide open field of possibility and that they will reciprocate of their own accord and they will know what is and is not appropriate You know how when you uh, get a job and they present you with a whole with like a whole series of things of what is and is not considered appropriate on your job, like appropriate attire, appropriate speech, appropriate things to say, appropriate behaviors, appropriate right? And you get this, you get presented as this from the HR department, this whole laundry list of things, essentially treating you like a child. Like you have no common sense. Like you don't know how to carry yourself in a professional environment. It's sort of like, you know, that's, that's the kind of document that a corporation drafts. Why? Because they want to limit their risk. They want to limit their liability. Because corporations are all about money and they're all about risk management. So they have their legal departments and their HR departments draft these policy and procedures manuals. And they say you are expected to adhere to these policies and procedures. These are the boundaries, if you will. Um... If you're with someone and they, you have this wide open field and you are attempting to establish within that field that you share, that shared field of um, 
unconditional love and someone does something or crosses a boundary which was never stated this is a boundary but they cross that boundary they they will know it and you will know it then you want to engage with them and find out what they did and why they did it and if they really comprehend that it was a boundary that they crossed or not even if it was an unspoken unwritten boundary if they claim ignorance and they claim well i didn't know that would have bothered i didn't know that bothered you you say well it bothers me now how do you feel about that and if they say you know what i didn't realize that was going to bother you so much i won't do it again this is a way of sort of navigating these things as they come up but there's no particular need necessarily to lay down the law and say yeah i'll love you and everything but these are my boundaries and you better stick inside of them otherwise it's not going to work that's that's not love that's you worried about yourself that's self-care that's <clears throat> that's that's self-interest and if you're saying and if you say to yourself and you rationalize to yourself no 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 it's really for the other person because i want them to have the benefit of getting to be with me <laughs> that's a circular that's a cyclical argument of self-interest it's really hard for women to hear this not men too but men can men men worry about this less it's really hard for women to worry about this because women have been subject of so many men who have violated boundaries but rest assured that all the men knew that what they were doing when they did it no 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 self-respecting individual has any any sort of common sense or worldliness whatsoever believes that they can do xyz and that it won't bother you that, it, that he's not crossing a boundary by doing xyz but if you try to preemptively prevent him from doing it by confronting him with it before he's even shown any sign of stepping over that boundary now all you've done is patronized him now all you've done is treated him as a child not as an equal not as a partner all you've done is said to him ahead of time saying i don't trust you i don't trust you to know what's right and wrong so i'm going to treat you like your mother and tell you ahead of time now don't be doing this don't be doing xyz otherwise just something to consider something to something to consider it's hard to hear and it's hard to swallow and let's face it we're not naive we're not stupid we know that many men out there they they need to be told xyz because many men are dumb but somehow we feel confident that anybody listening to this live stream isn't going to be attracting stupid ignorant people into their life and isn't going to be trying to start 
romantic relationships with ignoramuses and with, with walking zombies and with self-interested egotistical people who, by the way, even if you do lay down, even if you do lay down the law, even if you do set the boundaries, they're going to go ahead and break those boundaries anyway. If they were going to do it before, they're going to do it after. And you stating the boundaries uh, isn't going to make a lick of difference. It really isn't. If If that's their nature, in which case you don't want to be with that person anyway. But it's funny that we mentioned this because we're just having this conversation with someone. How uh, we learned, we don't use any online dating sites, certainly not Tinder or anything like that. We haven't for years. We used to be on eHarmony years and years, decades ago, decades ago, we were on eHarmony. But um, back then, it was still kind of civil and enjoyable and you can meet interesting people and so on. And one of the persons we met, we went on a first date with. And at the end of the date, I said to her, I said, all throughout the entire evening, I couldn't shake the feeling that this woman sitting across from me, I couldn't shake the feeling that she would be perfect for my friend, Dan. And, and at the end of the date, I said, Hey, listen, you know, Lisa, it's, uh, there's, there's nothing really happening here. Is there, there's, 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 there's no connection here. And she's like, Oh boy. She goes, you know, I think you're a really great guy and everything, but I'm so glad you said that because I've been feeling that the whole night. Like there's just like, there's no, we're not clicking. I said, you know what? hundred percent. We're on the same page, but I have a very good friend that I would love to introduce you to him because I just can't shake the feeling that you guys would really hit it off. And would it be okay if I gave, gave him your number? And she said, you know what? You seem like a really decent person. And I know that you're, you know, I figure any friend of yours is sure. What, what could it hurt? Right. Um, they've been married for over 10 years now and they have three kids. So, um, that's my little, uh, online dating story. Um, but nowadays, uh, we've heard through the grapevine that nowadays, uh, online dating apps, women have this, uh, expression that they use on online dating apps. And uh, in their profiles, they tell the uh, the prospective guys looking at their profile, you got to be a six, six, six. And they say, you know what? If you're not a six, 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 don't even bother. Don't even bother. You won't get a response. And you and you got and it begs the question. Well. What the hell are they talking about? Well, they're laying out boundaries. You know what the boundaries that they're laying out? They want you to be, uh, okay, so let's do it this way. They want you to be uh, six feet tall. If you're not six feet uh, tall or more, if you don't have six figures, okay, meaning salary, and uh, six inches. And we'll let you use your imagination what they're referring to there. 
That's what women are putting into their bios on dating sites nowadays. And they're telling men, if you're not a 666, don't bother. I'm not, I'm, you, you're not going to get a response. Now, this is an extreme example. This is an extreme Okay, boundary. These are extreme boundaries. But they are boundaries. And um, and it also reveals just how many women, uh, they have these expectations. Because boundaries, another word for boundaries are expectations. And uh, for a man trying to find a mate, you know, a regular guy trying to find a mate, uh, you know, who's 5'8", making $85,000 a year. This is like, he's essentially being told, you don't, you know, don't, don't bother. You're, you're done. You're going to be single the rest of your life. So again, this might be an extreme example, but no matter how you slice it, you're not, this is, this has nothing to do with love. This has absolutely nothing to do with love. It doesn't matter that it's on a dating site or whatever. This is a preemptive, egotistical uh passive aggressive statement of of uh of desire this is women being a control freak this this is this is women looking towards a relationship a potential mate as they as they look for a handbag or an article of clothing Right? You know, you have the bust size, the waist size, and the hip size. And I need these, these are the measurements that I'm looking for in a dress. Well, these are the measurements they're looking for in a man. If you don't measure up, forget it. Now, we don't do any online dating anymore. We haven't for decades. It doesn't directly affect us. But it just, reveals how far down the downward spiral things have gone since we did online dating two decades ago. How far things have degenerated. Nobody would ever put anything like this. Or the ones that we, the ones that did have mentioned, maybe they mentioned salary or maybe they mentioned, a lot of them did mention that they, they at least wanted a guy that was taller than them. They didn't want a guy that was shorter than them. So they would say, if you're shorter than me, um, I probably am not interested. You know, and that's, you know, if they're if they're if someone's not attracted to someone who's shorter than them, that's understandable. Right? So a woman who's five six, she'd like guys who are five seven and taller. Okay, fair enough. So there's there's but there's nobody alive who realistically 
and honestly is only attracted if a man is wealthy, six feet tall, and well-endowed. That's not love. That's closing. That's not a wide open field of opportunity and creating a space of unconditional love and hoping that the right person is going to walk into that space and, and, um, and reciprocate that unconditional love. That's not what this is. This is narrowing the field down into a very particular materialistic, uh, uh, egotistical uh, uh, framework and expecting to find true love in that very narrow definition. So, anyway, we don't want to dwell on this anymore, uh, this question of boundaries and the relationship of boundaries to love. Um, but Kathy says she does laugh at that. And uh, Cassandra says that uh, some impacts are catastrophic. Benjamin says it's hard to be an asshole while all you practice is doing good. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. Meaning, I believe what Benjamin means by this is um, um, many women are attracted to assholes. And what he's saying, it's hard to be an asshole while you are practice, uh, when all you practice is doing good. Now, here's something that we learned the hard way, Benjamin. And he, he follows up and he says, <clears throat> extreme is good for me. I'm more of an introvert. We learned this the hard way is that, um, and we were actually told this by an ex-girlfriend. She said, you can't be so nice all the time. <clears throat> she said, you, you can't be so nice to us all the time. She says, don't you know that um, if you're nice to us all the time, women become real bitches? And we meditated long and hard on that one. And suddenly, what, what came into our realization was, uh, was exactly what, you know, when we remember, a lot of what we share <clears throat> with you, it comes from experience. It's experiential knowledge. <clears throat> so, we came to this realization about love being severity and mercy and benjamin it's not assholes they want it's just that women want to be loved 100 fully cared for in all the ways that that means in every way that that means the problem is that so many guys are either nice guys or they're assholes. And assholes, too, have their moments of being nice guys. They're not always assholes all the time. So there's moments when, when uh, assholes are nice guys, but then the rest of the time they're assholes. But guess what? Women are so craving the firmness, the directness, the passion, a strong man, one that they can respect, that they would rather go out with the asshole than they would with the nice guy. Why? Because the nice guy is too nice. They lose all respect 
for the nice guy because he's leaving 50% of love on the table. He's not being assertive. He's not being direct. He's not being firm. He's not telling her, no, no, you're not going to get that. No, I'm not going to do this. No, you can't have that. No, forget it. Stop, stop acting like a child. Look, do I need to spank you? Like sometimes women just need a good spanking. And women know that. Women know sometimes they can be irrational and crazy and all sorts of things. And they want and need their man to tell them and show them with a firm hand. Say, hey, listen, you know, settle down, take it easy, relax. But a nice guy is unwilling to do that because a nice guy is too afraid. He's afraid of how she's going to react. He's afraid of getting into a fight with her. He's afraid of her, you know, storming off in a huff because she didn't get her way. He wants to be seen as the nice guy. He wants to be seen. He doesn't want to be seen as a tyrant. He doesn't want, and, and nice guys, we, and I'm including myself in this because I was this nice guy for a long time. All growing up, I would watch beautiful girls in high school and virgins and everything else go out with these assholes and lose their virginity in the back seat of a car or whatever, right? And be turned into mattresses by going to university and getting drunk and, you know, and just like being totally abused and taken advantage of by jocks and, you know, like the, like the football team and all the other assholes that I thought. And I always saw myself as being above them, right? I had a superiority complex. I was smart. I was intellectual. I was proper. I was charming. I was well-spoken. I was well-read. I could dance. I could treat women like ladies, like they were meant to be treated. I was a nice guy. And boy, did I take that. Was I attached, identified and attached that moniker of being a nice guy and treat women with respect and dignity and all this kind of stuff. All this, all the ways that I saw these assholes not giving these women. So I thought I'm going to be their antitheses. And I was. But it never worked out for me because the expression nice guys finish last exists for a reason. Because a woman wants a strong man. And a nice man, a nice guy is weak. We are weak. Because if we're not willing to be assertive and strong and stand up and tell her when she needs to be told and stand up for what's right, for what's right for both of us. Instinctively, on a primal level, a woman chooses a mate based on his strength. A woman chooses a husband based on his strength. A woman chooses the father of her children based on strength. Is he a strong man? Can I build a household on that foundation stone, on that cornerstone of that masculinity? Has he earned my respect? And in the absence of genuine strength, in the absence of, you know, genuine loving severity, women will, unfortunately, they'll go out with the asshole because she'd rather go out with a strong asshole 
than she would a weak, nice guy. And women become bitches to nice guys, and nice guys finish last because women lose all respect for a man who isn't strong. Because she knows in her times of weakness, she has to be able to lean on him, and he needs to be able to be solid as a rock, to be able to, to carry her in her times of weakness, in her times of emotionality, in her in whatever. She needs him to be strong. And for not only for her, but for her kids. If she's looking for someone to spend the rest of her life with and start a family with. And that's why nice guys finish last. Because nice guys are too nice. They're wet noodles. Right? And when it comes to romantic love, right, there's a reason why, uh, you know, we don't want to get necessarily too into detail, but you can use your imagination. The difference between a wet noodle and a strong, upstanding, firm man, and use your imagination, right, and your association between <clears throat> the male member and romantic relationships and ultimately what is going to work for a woman and what isn't going to work for a woman when we talk about manhood and masculinity. So um, we'll let... Uh, uh, okay, we have to back up here and say... Cassandra says, <clears throat> I've dated in my lifetime all variables of all three mentioned. None of those areas will speak to the quality of the relationship. She says, rich and poor, tall and short, different anatomical presentation, and none of that speaks to the potential of love to be there or not. Uh, we wholeheartedly agree because we've had many, a wide variety of, uh, of, of romantic partners throughout the years as well. Uh, Kathy Holton says, exactly, and she made this comment in reference to the nice guys finish last and what women, the women want strong men, not, not nice men. Cassandra says, uh, some people are so nice, they harm you in their niceness. Kindness is both soft and firm. Benjamin says, it is everything that I'm not, but I still need to do my homework and balance my rational mind out. All I can say, Benjamin, is when we finally woke up to this aspect that, that when we finally recognized the, the psychological song that we were singing ourselves, because this is really ego, to, to be identified with and attached to the nice guy monitor and believe ourselves, I'm a nice guy, I'm, I'm a nice guy, I'm a real catch. I'll treat her like, like she's a queen, you know? And we, we have this romantic ideas of, of, of treating women like the, like they should be treated and they'll never nobody has ever treated them the way we're going to treat them we're you know and it's like we have this romanticized uh, egotistical uh, uh, view of ourselves as being like the ultimate boyfriend right and and that th this nice guy whatever uh it's when we finally when I finally awoke to the self-sabotaging self-delusional, 
attitude that this was. And I embraced the fullness of what love is. And that means tough love when it needs to be. Um, the conflicts that, and, and some of the other problems that we had in relationships just evaporated. Just, they just vanished. Now, did all problems vanish? Did all, no, we, we, we stepped up to a whole different level of relationship and we had a whole different series of, of challenges to then face and deal with because we were attracting very different partners into our life. And, uh, and so we, we, we upgraded to a whole different level of challenges of relationships, which we talk about in, in our, um, our article on, um, on lovers and chi, chi eaters. But the point is that, so it didn't solve all of our problems, but what it did do was put us on the level of, of equality with our partners. And even when they were angry with us over something, they would never lose respect for us. Even if they were pissed off at us, fuming, angry, whatever, they still didn't lose, they, they still respected us. And this is really, really important in a relationship because you will fight. You will get into arguments. There will be disagreements. But you want those disagreements and those arguments because you will trigger one another. Because you will have, if you are, if you have a lot of chemistry, then you will be chemistry in a positive way and you'll be chemistry in a negative way. The sexual energy will want to flow. If it's not sparks in the bedroom, it's a raging grease fire in the kitchen. It's just the way relationships go. But if you have that, that, that fullness of love, of severity and mercy, then your, your partner will not lose respect for you. Even when there's a grease fire in the kitchen, she will recognize you not only trying to put the grease fire out, but she will recognize that you are acting out of her interest or the interest of the relationship, not out of your self-interest. And that it's, and that's, you're not going to be, and it's not going to be that you are, um, uh, you know, trying to, um, win her over and trying to, um, um, uh, pander to her by being a nice guy. And remember too, that between a man and a woman, you want to talk about conflict and what's very confusing <laughs> in relationships is that, uh, and we go into detail on this in our article on um, lovers and cheat eaters. Conflict between lovers is the sexual energy. It's just lust playing itself out through another ego. But it's still lust. It's still fornication. Because in the act of fighting and arguing, that conflict, uh, you're expending a great deal of sexual energy. And why so many couples, after they have a big rip-roaring argument or fight, a lot of them, what do they do? You go into the bedroom and you have makeup sex. And many couples will swear that the best sex they have is the, is the sex they have after an argument, after they, after they fight. 
that makeup sex is the best kind of sex. Why? Because fighting is foreplay. Because you're 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 exciting the sexual energy. It's the sexual energy. It's the creative force that's being stimulated, and the chemistry that you have with your partner in the conflict is 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 bringing up that energy. And it's like it's it's churning the energy, and it's like firing. It's 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 a uh, stoking the fires, right? It's firing up the ovens. So naturally, when you spend all that time and energy and effort firing up the ovens, naturally, the body, the primal urges, everything wants wants you to put something in the oven. <laughs> Right, it's you know, it want, then bake something for God's sake. You fired you, you fired up the oven to put something in the oven, and so that's that's what happens. That's why makeup sex couples swear by it, and that's why a lot of couples are fiery couples, and like many, like for example, uh, in fiery cultures, South American, South American, and other. Uh, Latin countries um, or countries uh, along the border where you have like fiery cultures, Italian and other, you know, Spanish and, and, and these, these cultures that are known, you know, less so the Northern Europe stuff, but more in the Southern uh, um, regions where it's hot. It's the, the temperature's hot, it's sweltering and you have these fiery cultures, like they're, the, Tango and, uh, and you know, like the dancing, for example, of these cultures, traditionally, they're hot, they're spicy, their food is spicy. They're, 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 they're fiery cultures and their personalities and their, their, their traditions, their cultures are fiery, uh, mercurial cultures. And they are passionate, right? I guess this is the other word for it. So, um, this can all be very confusing to someone who is trying to be a nice guy or a woman who's trying to be demure or, or you know, controlling her emotions or whatever, and then trying to have a relationship with someone who has a fiery personality or, or, you know, or an introvert trying to be with an extrovert or vice versa or, you know, two introverts, you know, uh, so on, right? Um. Where are we here? We got to go back. Uh, okay. Yeah, Cassandra says both niceness and cruelty can harm you. Kindness never will. Um, if what's called for is severity and all you get is kindness, then you're being harmed. If what you need is severity, but all you're getting is kindness, you're being harmed. That's where the expression comes to kill someone with kindness. So, um, it's severity is severity does not mean cruelty if you interpret severity as cruelty then you are you are you're actually hamstringing your own divine mother because life is said to be cruel but people who say that life is cruel you have to understand that your divine mother teaches us, our Divine Mother teaches us very, very harsh lessons, but our Divine Mother is not cruel. 
this is hard. This is this is hard to to recognize. The ultimate the ultimate expression of unconditional love is the expression of the divine mother for us. You know that life is not always kind to you. And you know that some of the most important lessons you've learned in life were very harsh, hard lessons you had to learn. Your divine mother orchestrated those lessons. If you want to really appreciate and comprehend the fullness of love, then meditate on the hard lessons of your life and meditate on your divine mother. And if you ever project into the astral plane, ask to see your divine mother. It's one of the first things we should do is ask to see our divine mother and remember her, right? Because those hard lessons, that, that knowledge, that experience that was hard fought, that came from us having to go through hell in order to learn what we learned, it broke your, it broke your divine mother's heart to do that. But she did it. Why? Because that's what we needed. That's what you needed. Not, not because she was wanted to be cruel. So we have to really like reorient ourselves. And if, we, and if we can't reorient ourselves by thinking about romantic love because, because of our experiences and so on and so forth with bad boyfriends and so on and, you know, all you need to do is rekindle and become conscious of your connection to and your relationship with your own divine mother. And that is the best way to comprehend what unconditional love is. Cassandra says the wisdom, um, the wisdoms is not to choose cruel assholes, but strong, firm kindness. Yeah, so agreed. You want strength, not cruelty. Um, Benjamin says, uh, but when most women are zombies, <laughs> is the problem from what I see in depth of in depth, of course. That's why I'm more passive in that sense. Leaves me to ponder, am I wrong? But uh, in stands, I'm just more observant. Instead, uh, I'm just more observant. Look, Benjamin, oh, and he says, um, yeah, I understand the ultimate boyfriend idea. You're right. Okay. You may be just attracting the wrong women. Um, <clears throat> but you're also in California. So, I mean... California is a strange place from from what we can gather. The, it, uh, California seems to be at at once a state where where so many people believe that they're awake and that they're spiritually advanced. And yet California is also the epicenter of of Hollywood and and mass pop culture. Like Los Angeles. Los Angeles is one of the most asleep places in the world, let alone the United States. But it's filled with people who think they're awake. So, um, I don't know, maybe move out of the state. <laughs> or, or maybe work on uh, the, the women who you're attracting that, that you, you know, not attract zombies. <laughs> Um, we're not sure what else we can say to that. And he says, yeah, I understand the, uh, ultimate boyfriend idea. Uh, Kathy says, respect is very important. And she says, I love tango. And, um, 
Benjamin says, thank you. Sorry for getting a bit personal. No, 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 no. It's, you don't have to apologize. That's what we're here for. Uh, and yes, Kathy, tango is our favorite dance. Tango is our favorite dance because tango is the, uh, the tension. And, and uh, it's, really, it's really an expression of the intensity that we bring to our own life, but also the tension that we live with as individuals um particularly and um and the just the passion that that comes through that uh, particular dance because we're very we're very intense and we're very passionate that way and that's the most intense and passionate dance we have other we have another uh, close friend who uh, does ballroom dancing and he was he, he his favorite is the rumba he says the rumba can be very intense and so on and so forth. but for us it's always been the tango Cassandra says, I lived in San Diego and I always said my Latin partners were as passionate in their joys as they were in their anger. And so too the bedroom. <laughs> uh, she says, I had a Latin partner once who we argued down every grocery aisle and, uh, and we asked how long we had, and, uh, and we were asked how long we had been married, even though we were dating. Basically, he was a passionate guy. We enjoyed our bickering. Uh, so that's that's interesting. You know, uh, we have a bit. We have a, a our business partner in Peapod Life. Uh, we would go out in public, and uh, people would always assume that we were married, just because of our bickering and arguing. We we, we would fight like an old married couple. We truly, and it was always in fun. It was always in. We were never angry and we were never, it was just, it was just our way. And sure enough, she didn't, she never liked to consider this because it was just really weird for her to consider this. But like, we know for a fact that we were married in a previous life. Uh, we've been brother and sister. We've been father and son, father and daughter, and we've been husband and wife. We've also been, yeah. And in this life, we weren't blood related brother and sister but she was she is in many ways like the older sister i never had and that's the relationship between um that's our soul family that lifetime after lifetime after lifetime very often we end up working with the same souls over and over and over again in in one or more intimate ways and sometimes they're a parent sometimes we're their parent sometimes they're our spouse sometimes they're a brother or sister a close cousin, a best friend, a business partner in this particular case. And, um, but always within our circle, we will have these, uh, this soul family. So it's interesting when we, uh, meet someone and, uh, and we meet them with them and not always, but sometimes we'll meet with them and we'll have this relationship with them where it's like almost from the day we meet, it's like, we're so comfortable with them. And we just so know that like when you talk about boundaries, like we just both know where the boundaries are and we just go up to those boundaries and we push them and push them and push them, but we never really cross them. But we're always, we're always playing in those boundaries. We're always playing in that very wide field, that wide, wide open space of love, which is really has a lot of possibilities in there. But since we're always, we're always on the edges where it's most interesting and most fun and most dynamic where the tension is highest, that's where people show up 
um, out of the blue and they'll say, how long have you guys been married? And we'll look at each other and say, we're not married. <laughs> but yeah, that's, there's a good chance we were married. And that's why we bicker and argue like an old married couple because we have that intuitive connection, that bond, that soul bond. And we know we've been here, we've done this a thousand times and we know where the limits of this space is. And it's so broad and it's so wide, this field of love that we share this unconditional love that that we can you know we can um, tightrope walk around the edges quite comfortably and safely knowing that even if we slip and we cross that boundary we will be quickly forgiven and all is forgotten right and it and we just we just have that relate when we find individuals in our life that we can be that comfortable with and that open with and that honest with this is where conflict and confusion evaporates right and and when we are with them we are closest to ourselves and these are these special people in our lives that we know ourselves better when we are together with them than we are with other strangers who are again they're strangers they're strange we're not familiar with them we don't know them and then there's a, the, these people in our lives that we, we know them as, we know them like we know ourselves. They're like putting on an old, familiar sneaker that we've had for 10 years. You know that sneaker that you have down in the basement somewhere that you slip it on and it's like, it's the most comfortable shoe you have in your possession because it's 10 years old. It's a well-worn sneaker. There are people in our life like that. And they're part of our soul family. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, it's very hard to fall into conflict with them. Or if we do, it's a kind of bickering, an old married couple type bickering. That's like, it's just, it's just our way together. It's just like, because we're passionate, we care about each other and we're care and we care about the things that we're working on together. And we care so much, we care enough and we're passionate enough, en uh, enough about it that we'll come to loggerheads, that we confront one another. It's never really a conflict, but it is a confrontation because we got to work out the edges. We've got to work out the details and there's going to be some friction in the working out of those details. But that's what friction does, right? That's what smooths over the edges. You need friction. You need to take sandpaper to wood, sand it down so it's nice and smooth and you get all the splinters out. It's the same thing when you're working with uh, um, a, uh, a sculpture. First, you take the hammer and chisel and you carve out the rough hewn shape of what you're, what you're sculpting. And then you start getting the sandpaper out and the chisels. And you start slowly chiseling and sanding down the marble or whatever it is you're working with <clears throat> to get those beautiful, soft, flowing lines into the uh, into things. So there's friction there. And that requires confrontation, but not conflict, right? Not confusion. That's the difference. Because confrontation with care, and we talked about this earlier, someone mentioned it in, this, in the chat. Confrontation with care, firmness but kindness, right? There's a, there's a place for both. And, but you always care. You always care about the other person, what's best for the other person, and what's best for the collective. 
Yeah, you see, so Cassandra's got, like bickering is more just being authentic with each other and not hiding an opinion to avoid conflict. So, but it's this, but it's that comfort level, right? It's the trust that you can be who you are and you're unafraid to be who you are. So there's a trust there. There's a space in there. You can be who you are and you know there's going to be, you know there's going to be a confrontation, right? But you're not avoiding conflict, but you know that you can have a confrontation without it devolving into a conflict. And we're we're using that we're using those words specifically to um, uh, for a reason because conflict denotes a fight. Confrontation could just mean a discussion or, an, as you say, bickering. Because some couples they can't discuss, they can't discuss. They can only bicker. They can only argue. They can only fight. Fight, right? Our parents were like that, right? Most of the time they were just bickering, right? But there's a playfulness to it, right? There's a there's a dynamicness to it. And Kathy uh, Holton is agreeing here. And she says, that kind uh, of space with someone is gold, right? And Cassandra says, perfectly said, we, 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 we have this experience. We, we, and we know that what Kathy is saying here is mag is important. It is magical. It is gold because there's a playfulness to bickering. There's a playfulness. It's yes, it's important, but neither person is taking themselves all that seriously. What we're taking seriously is each other and whatever it is that we're bickering about. So if if we're having people over for dinner, right? We're having people over for dinner and we're making a turkey. Okay, let's it was Thanksgiving here in Canada yesterday. We had a big Thanksgiving do, right? And we're and we're making dinner and there's a bunch of people coming over and we're making a turkey and and uh she wants to do it this way and I want to do it that way. And it's like, "No, you got to rub the spices under the skin of the turkey." And she says, "No, no, no, no. There we don't have time for that. We got to get the turkey in the oven. <laughs> Just sprinkle the, the 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 spices on top. It'll be fine." I said, "No, but it's so much better if we we we'll, we'll, I'll melt some butter and I'll put the spices in the melted butter and I'll and I'll just give give the the turkey a, a good rub down under the skin, right?" And they're like, "No, no, we don't have time for that. We got to get the turkey in the oven, right?" So neither person is taking themselves seriously. Like it's not about it's about both of them want to make the best experience for their guests. We want to, you know, we don't we want the turkey to turn out. We want the best turkey. <laughs> and she's like, the best turkey is going to happen the sooner we get it into the oven. And he's like, no, the best turkey is heaven. We got to spend some time and take our time and like massage down that turkey and get the spices in there, right? So you get this bickering, you get this, this confrontation, but it's not, it's not, there's nothing personal in it because it's all about the end. It's all about um, uh, the focus which is a shared enterprise. It's a shared goal. We both want what's best in this moment. We want to make the best turkey. <laughs> it's this ridiculous example, but it's true. And so bickering and arguing in a relationship about the relationship, what's best for the relationship, what's best for the kids, what's best for our future, where confrontation turns into conflict, 
we you know is when is when it devolves into this into all this right this this is where you get conflict where each each individual is worried about themselves is worried about what's good for them and and ending up on the short end of the stick so when you can find someone that they're worried about what's best for you and you're not worried about that's not the right word your your concern is your focus is what's best for them their focus is what's best for you and together combined your focus is what's best for the both of you the relationship the family the enterprise if you are looking for a partner to share a path with a life path a life work with you need someone who's going to say uh when you ask them the question what's more important to you your life's work or me you want someone to say both because i can't see myself completing one without the other right i can't see myself fulfilling my life's work without you that's golden that's when you guys that you know and whether that life's work is having a family if someone asks you what's more important to you me or the kids you say i can't see myself raising these kids without you you're equally important the difference is i can never i can never choose my kids over you because if if losing you meant keeping the kids i don't know how i would i don't know how i could love my kids without you or I don't know how I could do my life's work without you. So yes, my life's work is very, very, very important. And I don't think I would give it up to just go with you and live on a desert island. So in that sense, my life's work is more important than you. But I don't think I can complete my life's work without you. This is this is the this is what we're looking for. This type of this bond, this type of thing where, where, yeah, we can bicker and argue, and but it's never personal. It's always playful. It's always high energy. It's always because of that, in that creative space, we have that space of unconditional love with these boundaries way pushed out way to the end, but we can tap dance on those boundaries together. We can tangle all the way. It's like when you see ballroom dancers, we ballroom dance. I think I've told you this before. When you see ballroom dancers or ice dancers, we used to skate on the ice. It's all about using the whole space, every inch of the ice. So we would skate right up to the edge, right up to the boards, because with these big, long, sweeping lines, and it doesn't matter if you're on the ballroom floor or on the ice, it doesn't matter. You always use the full space of your space of love. Because it's it's your it's 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 the firmament, it's the world to you. That shared space of love you have with someone, that's the world to you. And so you want to exist not only at world, but also, also to, to, to be on the edges of the new frontier, on the edges of discovery, on the edges of, of to boldly go where you haven't gone before together. Because remember, you've, gone, you've done this journey, if it's a soulmate, especially if it's a twin soul, you've done this journey with them many times in different, in different ways, in different 
arrangements, different orientations. Um, anyway, we don't want to keep recover. We don't want to keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. Cassandra says, when one partner is focusing on themselves to your detriment, this can push a person into needing to consider themselves. Now, this is true. This is true. This is this is where self-respect and self-love does come into play. And also what we said earlier about being practical. And remember we said that, that being unconditional love is not an invitation for you to um, um, put up with anything and everything that the other person does and forgive them no matter what. I mean, this is... This is not what unconditional love means. Sometimes the severity that you have to bring to the table is to cut them off and say, that's it. Three strikes and you're out. That's it. You're, you're clearly, you're, you know what? We, we shouldn't be together. It was nice. It was nice when it lasted, but you've crossed a line. You were told you crossed a line. You didn't care. You crossed it again, or whatever. Um, no one is expected to endure uh, uh, abuse and and all sorts of uh, cruelty and everything else uh, superfluously, just because. And do not ever get it into your head that you owe it to your partner, you owe it to anybody to put up with their bullshit because you must be an expression of unconditional love. This is the whole severity side of the thing. You have to be prepared to put these people in their place. If they've done something they shouldn't do, you got to put them, and if they don't, if they don't respect that, this is where the boundaries come in, right? Where you actually start to, okay, you're new, we don't know each other that well, you cross this line, but you know what? There are these. We gotta. We gotta work out these boundaries. You know, we gotta work these things out. If they're not interested in respecting that, if they're not interested in working out those boundaries together with you, defining what those are, you know, dancing along the edges, knowing how far they can go, where, 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 you know, step crossing over the line, and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, and and how are we flexible on these things? And, and so this is a this is a creative process. This is a negotiation. But if they're not willing to do that negotiation in real time, I don't mean talking it out. I mean, actually, like, practically real time, knowing it, feeling it out, and actually experience, experientially negotiating all of those um, landmines that couples can get into and find themselves trapped in the middle of. If they're not interested in negotiating and, and tiptoeing their way through that landmine into the clear meadow on the other side, if they're not willing to do that in good faith, then cut your losses and walk away. You have it within your right to do so. And don't expect anybody to change for you. So just bring down the hatchet, cut the cord, let them go. If they learn the error of their ways and they realize the mistake they made, they might come crawling back on their hands and knees begging you to take them back then you'll be confronted with a, another situation another and then you'll have a, a different decision to make but there is that old cliche if you love someone set them free if they're meant to be with you they'll return 
but don't ever cling to anything and certainly don't ever get into your head that unconditional love means you have to put up with 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 nonsense you don't you don't just but listen to your heart follow your gut follow your intuition beware the gremlins and the egos not just in the mind but in the heart because they can they really do like to um sabotage couples especially couples who are meant to be together because couple soulmates they have a lot of chemistry and that chemistry and they mirror each other in many perfect ways because that's what makes them soulmates so we attracted them into our life because there's nobody better who we can learn and grow together with and but it's but it's a double-edged sword because we're going to be triggering each other all the time and the demons that are going to be coming up to the surface they're going to be coming up to the surface and they're going to be trying to sabotage they're going to be trying to get us to 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 uh again have that grease fire in the kitchen go out of control and burn the whole house down so we have to be aware of that have to be conscious of that Kathy says, I used to teach ballroom dance. Really? We never taught it. We never taught it. Um, but uh, but we certainly did dance with a bunch of people who had never danced before. <laughs> so, um, Cassandra says, love goes beyond presence. Uh, presence may require limits. When we talk about that space, there will be boundaries to that space and in a relationship those boundaries are explored and arrived at through this constant negotiation <clears throat> and it's not a verbal negotiation you talking it out might be part of it but when we talk about boundaries we're not it's a very uh, uh it's really It's more like the definition, like the outline, the shape, the nature, the, the unique character of the relationship, which is unique to every single couple. And that outline, it's like, it's like the boundaries or the borders of a nation, right? It's like no two nations in the world look the same. Every country looks different. And their they're, they're borders there are all sorts of different uh, factors that come into play as to why the border was drawn here and not there. And why here it's straight and here it's jagged and all that kind of stuff, right? So <clears throat> if you think of this space of love, of unconditional love, it's a space that you're trying to, it's like you and your partner are like establishing a nation. And when you establish a nation you have to decide where the borders are well you can't just look at a map and say well let's draw it here and here and here and this way and that way and you got to go out there you got to see what the geography is so you go and you travel around <clears throat> you know you travel around your country you go for a walk you go for a hike you go for you go on a trip together and in the course of that journey you discover Oh, there's the topography. Oh, look, there's some, you know, there's the mountains, there's the forest, there's a river, there's a this or that. That's all part of geography and topography, I suppose. 
But there's all these other factors coming into play, right? And then in that process, you will experience, you will arrive together as, aha, there's the natural place to put the, 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 the natural place to put the border. And yeah, you could, you could bump up against those boundaries for sure. But you could also climb up those boundaries and look at the other side and see the precipitous fall on the other side together and go, okay, we don't want to go there, right? <laughs> you, go, you, go, you walk right to, the, to the, the edge of the white cliffs of Dover, right? And you look down into the, to the angry Atlantic beneath and you say, okay, pretty sure this is where a border goes, right? <laughs> but you discover that, right? You discover it together. And in the discovery of it, it can be humorous. You can be lighthearted. It can be an adventure. And it can be a, oh boy, we almost went careening off the side of a cliff together. Good, 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 you know, note to self, right? This is, let's uh, let's be extra careful when we're tiptoeing across the, uh, across the, uh, the white cliffs of Dover here, right? This is, this is the difference between uh, establishing boundaries and having a partner who you are comfortable and trust you can go and discover those boundaries together and you you set those boundaries from your own experience and it doesn't mean that you it doesn't mean you have to fall over the cliff to learn that it's a boundary right all you need to do is see it and recognize it as such and you both look over and you look at each other and you nod knowingly you don't even have to you don't even have to say any words it's beautiful it's extraordinary it's wonderful that we had this experience and everything else, but hey, we both know there's 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 cause for caution here, right? And you go on and you move on with your the rest of your journey. You don't dwell on it and you don't have to make a big deal out of it. When you're with someone that you can just share that moment of silence that you 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 look at them and you give them that loving nod and you're like, yeah, yeah. And they nod back at you like, yeah, okay, we're on the same page. We know it. We don't have to say anything. We know what we've just been through. We know what we just saw. We know what we just experienced. And, uh, and we know what we just learned from that. And you move on. It's like scent of a woman, right? Right, Kathy? If you get tangoed up, you just tango on. Uh, Cassandra also says, nuanced, untangible sense of respecting each other. Well, there you just put into words exactly what we just described, what we just tried to describe the experience of, right? All right. <clears throat> uh, surprisingly, or perhaps not surprising, and, and Kathy says, right, okay. If you get tangled up, you just tangle on. Um, we started out uh, on a very different subject matter, or at least what what causes and we we ended up in a very 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 different place than uh than we expected to but because we have no expectations really in that sense we 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 have no um biases towards where we end up um it's interesting because here's where we ended up um conflict um, leads to confusion, which separates us from ourself. And conflict seeks to separate um, individuals from one another 
And in the macrocosm, what we see happening right now in the world and uh, and what that means for the Kali Yuga and possibly Armageddon, people trying to be torn apart. And as they're trying to be torn apart in the macrocosm, on the political stage and, and on the cultural stage, on the racial stage and religious uh, 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 dimensions, the most important thing is they're being torn apart and separated metaphysically from themselves, their higher selves, their true selves, their being. And this is how the Black Lodge divides and conquers us. And from there, we, um, as Cassandra suggests, we've woven together beautifully, although we can take no credit for it. I can take no credit for it anyway, because really it was all in response to you and your comments and your uh responses and your how you were how the flow of what uh our friend wolfgang would call the us conversation or the speaking to the listening we just started mapping out and started taking it where it was going and we let it go where it needed to go because after all relationships right bonding uniting being one together as one the 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 bonds of holy matrimony right that's that's everything that's 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 one of the reasons why this humanity was separated into the sexes so that god could know itself better so that this humanity could know itself better by by that by that that incessant longing for union, to be one again, for the fusion. And so by comprehending love and the two aspects of love, severity and mercy, and always caring for the other and always caring for the shared space, the shared enterprise, the space of love that we are cultivating together, like we were describing, like establishing a nation together and where the boundaries are and everything else with the topography and experience and everything else that we we're describing and and having faith and trust that the person we are with um they're going to be on the same page and when they're not when they don't respect those boundaries and when they don't do this well we know we have to cut ties and we have to go and seek someone else because there's no point in trying to force the issue and push anything and force anything on anybody that's not what severity is about Right? We should also be careful about that and imposing our boundaries on others and so forth and so on. So anyway, we ended up here uh, starting out talking about Middle East conflict, but really in the microcosm, romantic relationship and relationship and true uh, our soul family and, 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 but, and all of this, how it relates to the connection to our true self and the connection to love. This is what really matters. Because, let's face it, the 144,000, 144,000, we want to talk about the Kali Yuga? This, right, reduces to nine, Kabbalistically. Nine is Yasad. On the Tree of Life, the ninth sphere, this is the sexual force. So the fact that we ended up talking about relationships 
and talking about you know how uh modern day dating women want 666 yeah well to be a 666 in your mind your heart and your body is to be an inverted nine because what we want to be is a nine 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 a nine in the mind a nine in the heart and a nine in the body that's one away from a perfect 10 that's an upright nine an upright human being upright that's upright we're a nine if we are inverted i don't know can i even draw an inverted pentagram yeah maybe i can okay so to be inverted is to be the inverted pentagram this is a this is a lucifer this is a satanic sign right so we don't want to be this we don't want to be facing down we want to be facing upright so we want to be nines in our three brains so the fact that we started out talking about conflict and confusion and who is uh dividing and conquering whom it is almost natural that we ended up where we ended up because in microcosm in our in our uh in our lives this is really for many of us what matters most and in terms of the kali yuga in terms of being part of the 144,000 who are uh, who are uh, saved the chosen ones okay the chosen the ones who will be chosen they're ones who are upright nines they are what are part of the 144,000 working in yasod in the tree of life so <clears throat> we're going to scratch out that inverted pentagram because uh heaven forbid the uh the <laughs> the algorithms decide that that is also something that needs to go so here uh let's see as azil says in my last relationship i took calculated risks but man am i bad at math <laughs> you and me both brother we I'm, I'm terrible at math <laughs> um cassandra says the macrocosm is as the microcosm the ills and healing of the greater universe and society can be seen is one on one partnerships as well yes so that's right as in microcosm so in macrocosm and we can see that the same expectations and and you know the the this 666 that we were talking about here on tinder and and modern dating apps you can see that playing out in the world in macrocosm as nations make demands on others and and so on and and uh and have these expectations that because they're only thinking about themselves and everybody seems to be um concerned with their uh with what's best for them and very people seem to be concerned about what's best for others except for the social justice warriors who feign they do um uh uh virtue signaling because they too right they have nice guy syndrome right the social justice warriors they want to be seen as worried about everybody else and they want to be seen that they're concerned about justice but really they're only concerned about themselves their own egos and they're only being being uh, seen as a certain way and they're just as bossy and cruel and becoming a tyrant as anybody else that they believe that they're speaking out against tyranny it's a uh, it's 
it's a great irony. And Cassandra Gramps also says, wow, yes, her mind is blown. We believe that was about the 999 and the uh, the pentagrams, the, in, the inverted and the upright pentagram. But we could be wrong. But anyway, Cassandra's mind was blown there at the end. Anybody have any questions or comments or concerns? Or um, let's open it up to, uh, yeah, and she says, yes, she agrees with that. Okay, so let's open it up to uh, comments and concerns and questions. You can ask just about anything. Or if you have any insights that you have related to what's going on in the Middle East, that's uh, feel free to share that. Uh, we think that it's still a little bit too early to tell <clears throat> what, if anything, is going to come out of this. But if... Um, If Netanyahu uh, lives up to his word, and if he follows through with what he says he's going to do, then um, <clears throat> this thing has the potential to escalate and uh, spill over, and um, it could. It, if it if it keeps snowballing, if it keeps um, yeah, if it keeps snowballing then um and it triggers a chain reaction but the one thing if it if it leads if it leads to the muslim authority <clears throat> declaring a jihad against the infidel then we're in we're 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 in for a um a very 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 serious uh, global uh, 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 conflict. That's that's our assessment at this time, and um, and certainly if Netanyahu drops a nuke somewhere, if Netanyahu uh, fires a nuke into Iran, for example, that's that we're we're looking at we're looking at a very 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 serious escalation because uh, Russia is allied with not only Iran but Syria and and we could we could be we could be in for some very very um, turbulent and um, destructive times indeed Cassandra says Greece uh, she says Greece fire in the kitchen could burn down the house yes yes uh, it, it, it could uh, it could indeed. Uh, but you will find that, uh, generally speaking, grease fires in the kitchen between couples, uh, doesn't burn down the house. Most couples don't let the fires in the kitchen, uh, burn out of control like that, uh, unless they do it for years and years and years and years and years. And then the house just slowly degrades and falls apart. And that's, they grow, they call it, it's called growing apart and divorcing after 20 years. But um, but we talk about sparks in the bedroom, fires in the kitchen. It's again, it's just that the sexual energy, the people who have chemistry, the sexual energy is going to flow, and the sexual energy doesn't care if it flows up and atom or down and out, right? So it, it doesn't care if it's flowing with love and affection or anger and frustration, right? It's just going to flow. It's just it's nature. Energy has to flow. 
Energy does not want to be stagnant. Just like everything in nature, everything has to keep moving. As Azul says, I'm a bit late for sharing insights now. We missed quite a bit of the stream due to work. But yeah, the situation overall is not something we should overlook. Uh, Azazel is here, of course, is referring to the, uh, the situation in the Middle East. Um, Azazel, what happened was we began on that topic. That was what uh, prompted today's live stream. And uh, in the course of events, we moved from the macrocosm uh, down to the microcosm and how everything that's happening in macrocosm and in microcosm, we want to be sure that we're working on fusion with our higher self and that conflict and confusion is by design exists in the Kali Yuga in order to separate us from our higher self. So for us to become one of the zombies, for us to become one of the, the walking dead and a part of this humanity that mechanical nature wants us to be uh, involved with, with our egos and ruled by our egos, spilling blood and doing the rest of it in order to fulfill uh, those aspects of the Kali Yuga. But our goal as esotericists, as seekers, as Gnostics, whatever we want to call ourselves, our goal on the path is to maintain our composure and our equanimity and our peace, even, even in light of all of the conflict and the confusion, to be able to transform those impressions and recognize and confront that within, within us which wants to react to the confusion and the conflict and cause us the internal confusion to cause us to the separation from ourselves we want to be able to confront that within ourselves and transform and eventually comprehend and eliminate the causes of our suffering so uh yeah there's in a nutshell cassandra says but it could lead to making up and a healthier understanding on both sides we can hope for the better outcome. Uh, perhaps you weren't uh, yet listening at the time. We also mentioned how um, a grease fire in the kitchen can lead to makeup sex. And many couples swear by makeup sex. Uh, we talked about it earlier in the live stream. So, Because many couples, they fight like cats and dogs. And for them, it's like foreplay. Because it's getting the sexual juices flowing. It's getting, it's getting them aroused. Remember, being angry... And yelling and screaming and you know and punching and hitting and throwing things and uh, that's you're aroused you are aroused now it might be your anger that's aroused it might be your envy or might be your fear your all kinds of things can be aroused but but you have to understand that arousal there's only one force that causes arousal it's the sexual force it's just whichever egos are utilizing the sexual force determine the emotion and the state of arousal, if you're anger or fear or whatever, it's still the sexual force. So if your sexual energy is being aroused by anger, if that anger can suddenly be uh, displaced by lust, then bingo. The fighting and the shouting turns into, into uh, having sex having makeup sex. And Cassandra says, hoping for an e a healthier outcome for the Middle East. Uh, we can hope 
and we can pray. Um, just keep it on the level of hope and pray. Don't uh, take anything into the level of expectation because in expectation, there's that's where disappointment and, and a lot of suffering can come. So um, remember that this was foretold. Armageddon was foretold. And it's only really a matter of time. <clears throat> We're not saying that it's starting now. But it, but this might be, again, the pebble that starts the rock slide. <clears throat> As Azel says, Sweden is not precisely neutral in <clears throat> either of these wars since we supply weapons to the, quote, good guys. <clears throat> well... The United States is 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 not is not at all neutral. <laughs> the United States is is uh, is uh, patently uh, on the side of one side of the quote good guys, uh, which is which is laugh which is a laughable uh, concept to begin with. Um, Kathy says, "Thank you. I learned quite a bit uh, about you today." Oh, quite a bit about about us. Enjoyed it. Oh, all right. That may be a good thing. That may be a bad thing. We don't know. Uh, so everyone, look for the uh, the new tell-all book uh, authored by Kathy Holton uh, coming next month. Uh, you'll see us on Insider Edition or in the tabloids or whatever. So uh, does anybody else have any uh, questions or comments before we call it a day? We have a, our something in our throat again. So, uh, yes. So you would have learned quite a lot about us today because um, we got into that territory of um, of relationships, and as we said, we we invoked our own experience uh, because. I mean, that's where knowledge comes from. Genuine knowledge comes from experience and insight. And as we shared with you, we were we were gifted with certain insight and after meditation and contemplation and then experience, certain things emerged and, and so on and so forth. And we also shared some of our foibles and shortcomings in years past. Because remember, we've got, you know, it's 50 years now under our belt in this lifetime of... Uh, of being horrendously stupid and making all sorts of silly mistakes and uh, learning the hard way a lot of the things that we that we know and that we share um so yeah today was was in, in inevitably going to reveal certain things and some of you shared as well uh personal things and experiences and so on that are again rather there are a few things more personal than uh, romantic relationships and, and experiences of, of that nature. The only thing that's really more personal is our uh, spiritual relationship, the relationship with our true self and our divine mother and beyond the being of our being, the logos, which is sort of the most precious and the most sacred 
the most personal, <clears throat> the most intimate. <clears throat> and why we brought it all back and mentioned in the end the uh, 144,000 and how that relates to nine, you saw it on the tree of life and all of that because it is, uh, that's the intimate relationships that we have with one another, the romantic intimate relationship. Again, as above, so below. It's it's the closest we can it, it's the closest we can achieve to experiencing a proxy on the material plane to the intimacy that we can experience um, in the supernal worlds. So the physical intimacy that we have with our partner and the the practice of white tantra. <clears throat> is the analog and the marriage, uh, the 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 union of man and woman, um, is the proxy, is the allegorical, symbolic, physical um, analog. That's where that word comes from, right? Analog, real, but analogous. And that's why that word is in analogous ultimate methodology. Because it is through what Master Samuel called the perfect matrimony that we can <clears throat> synthesize, transform and transmute in the process of sexual alchemy. We can transmute the lead of ego into the gold of the human soul, the solar bodies, which are the vehicles, the vessels <clears throat> that allow us to achieve that union, that fusion with our innermost being, with our higher self. So it is natural, really, that we arrived where we arrived to, and then it was woven together, as Cassandra suggested. Because fusion is what we seek, union with divinity. And if conflict, and if confusion is the antithesis of that, and conflict breeds confusion, as we described at the beginning, where conflict is the incendiary spark, and confusion is the cloud, the dust cloud, the cloud of debris and smoke that, that bellows and lingers for hours after the fact. Like, remember the dust clouds after 9-11? All that asbestos and all that, like, um, uh, powdered concrete right? Because of all of the uh, uh, incendiary devices which went off that day that, that, that pulverized the concrete of those buildings and created those enormous dust clouds. Or you think about an erupting volcano, right? And how a, a volcano erupts on Iceland and you have the incendiary explosion, but then you have the, the, the ash that spreads out over the entire surface of the planet and and causes haze in cities all over the world right so it's that haze it's that cloudy confusion if it's conflict which leads to that cloudy confusion now you know why the war of armageddon it's almost like an essential aspect of the kali yuga it's almost essential that it has that it takes place because it's one of the most powerful weapons that the black lodge has to create that cloud of confusion, because it's in that cloud of confusion, confusion, 
opposition, to oppose the fusion. Oppose the fusion between lower self and higher self. That is the antichrist, that is the anti-religion, the anti-yoga of the Black Lodge. The determinism against our free will, the physical against the metaphysical, um, the material against the immaterial, etc., etc., etc. The great conflict, the great battlefield for the souls of humanity, and the great war for the soul of humanity, Armageddon, takes place within. And everything out there is just there to create the confusion inside of our own psyche. So just remember that. And, and we, we wanted to make sure that we had an opportunity to um, to say to all of you that that it's you may as well begin preparing psychologically, emotionally for if it's not now, for what will come, some version of it will come because the Black Lodge will not give up this particular tool in their arsenal. <clears throat> okay. Azazil says that he doesn't have any more questions. So he says, have a good night. Uh, we ask one more time and we'll give you guys 30 seconds or a minute to type your questions or your hellos or goodbyes or whatever you'd like to uh, say. And then we will... Um, <clears throat> we will uh, call it a net, call it a day, call it a night, wherever you are in the world. If you happen to be in Canada, then happy Thanksgiving. And uh, <clears throat> a strange thing to be in Canada, to be honest with you, and celebrating Thanksgiving on the same day that this conflict. Uh, erupted in the Middle East. It was a strange thing yesterday. And, you know, everyone <clears throat> showed great restraint. No one mentioned it. No one talked about it over dinner. We had 13 people over for Thanksgiving. And, uh, and in a way, at times, it was almost like you could sense that some people had it on their mind, but, but the rest of the time, we just, we just, you know what? Out of sight, out of mind. We're not going to ruin Thanksgiving. We're not going to turn this into a big political debate, right? It was just family, and um, and everybody showed great restraint. We just kept it civil and loyal, and just focused on the food. And oh my God, was there food? There was so much food. We can't even begin to describe how much food there was. We're going to be eating leftovers uh, well into next week. After which, we will be getting a month long fast. I think. So anyway, uh, as Azil says, uh, next week, I won't be at work during the stream. So we'll be happy to have you on uh, Azazel next week. And Cassandra says that I'm marinating in this discussion today. Very important topics, but I will say happy Thanksgiving to all my Canadian neighbors to the north. Thank you, Cassandra. And it was a pleasure having you here and having you participate in the, uh, in the chat and the discussion, as always. All right, then. To all of you, we want to thank you once again for being with us today. And we hope that uh, you have a wonderful week. 
Um, we hope and pray that things don't escalate, but uh, we also aren't getting our hopes up, nor are we having ex any ex expectations either way. So we hope that you got lots out of today's live stream. And as always, we hope to see you again next week. And in the meantime, take care, be at peace, and uh, inverential peace. Goodbye, everyone.